listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. It's in your New Testament, kind of towards the back, a good way to find it. You can always use your table of contents. If you use the Bible on your phone, then you've got it made in the shade. It's easy. You just go to 1 Peter chapter 4 this week. 1 Peter, if you're not sure where it is, find Hebrews in your New Testament. It's kind of a bigger book in the New Testament. And go Hebrews, and then go two books to the right. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, and that's where we are. And what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been going through this letter. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is study consecutively, which means like verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We feel that's a great way for us to let God speak to us through his word. And so that's our our goal is to hear everything he has to say and receive it. And so we study verse by verse through books of the Bible. I always say it's like playing golf. One week you hit the ball. Next week, you pick up where you left off. And so that's what we're doing here in 1 Peter. So we're going to begin our study this morning by reading from chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, glor- let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us today, just as it spoke 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate these words in our hearts and our minds, that we might understand them and not just understand what they mean, but Lord, by your strength, put them into practice in our lives and live them out, Lord, for our joy, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this. If God is all-powerful, which means he can do anything, and God is all-loving, then why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? Think about it. If God can do anything, doesn't that mean he could stop things from happening? Doesn't that mean he could prevent bad things from happening so they would never happen? And maybe there are times that he does. Probably there are a lot of things that God prevents or protects us from that we don't even realize because they never actually happened, right? But the ones that do, those are the ones that stick with us. If God is all-powerful and if God loves us, then why does he allow bad things to happen to us? I believe it's really true. It's been said, and I believe it's true, that for most people who struggle with Christianity or with embracing the gospel or following God— The issues are not usually so much theoretical as they are personal. Let me give you an example. I have a friend who is a missionary. Uh, Well, no, his family was missionary, right? His dad was a pastor who pioneered a church planting movement in the former Soviet Union in the early 90s and into the 2000s. And at one point, my friend 
His name's John. At one point, his dad got sick, right? This great missionary, this great pioneer. He got sick. He got pancreatitis. And he was in a hospital in Central Asia when this happened. He got pancreatitis and he got sepsis. And the doctors there tried to save his life, but he died. And my friend told me that when his dad died, he was, he was beyond just sad. He was actually upset. He was upset and he started asking, why? Why, God, why would you let my dad die? I mean, here's a man who devoted his life to you. He gave his life, gave up his comfort, moved halfway across the world to serve unknown people, he, you know, strangers. Why didn't you heal him? We prayed for him to be healed. Why wasn't he healed? Why is it that there are horrible people all over the place who are perfectly healthy, and then there are people like my dad who love people and took care of the poor and preached the gospel, and you just let him die? And you don't heal him even when we ask you to. And he told me in his mind, he started to even have these thoughts like, maybe there is no God. I mean, maybe everything is just random and there's no rhyme or reason to anything. And, you know, the universe is just random and things like this just happen. And like I pray and my prayers are going nowhere because maybe there is no God. Now, this friend of mine, he was a Christian. He's still a Christian. But he started questioning his faith when he was faced with suffering and hardship, as so many of us do. But here's what he told me. Then he, his thoughts continued. He began to think a little bit differently. He said, he began to have these thoughts and began to think, wait a second. My dad is just one person out of billions of people who have lived and suffered and died and gotten sick in accidents and things like that. My dad's just one person. And honestly, a lot of really good things did happen during his life. But here's the thing he said, look, lots of people have gotten sick and suffered, but I only began to question God when it was personal, when it was something personal. In other words, his struggle, and I believe for most of us, the struggle isn't just theoretical. It's personal when we talk about suffering. It's not just why do bad things happen. The question really gets asked or it really gets intense when we start wondering why do bad things happen to me or to people I love. See, because if God can do anything and if God loves me, then why doesn't God stop things from happening? Why does he let bad things happen to me? Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 4, particularly in verse 19, Peter uses a very, very interesting phrase. He talks about people who are suffering according to the will of God. He says that some of our suffering can actually be according to the will of God. And that brings up some really important questions about the nature of suffering and whether suffering can actually have a positive and useful role in our lives and in God's plan for the world. In this section, Peter's going to address three important topics in regard to suffering and the will of God. And those are these. Number one, we're going to talk about assumptions about suffering. Number two, he talks about the redemption of suffering. And number three, he gives us a new way to think about suffering. So let's talk about the first of these. Assumptions about suffering. Peter begins this chapter or this section within this chapter in verse 12 by saying this, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were living in the Roman Empire and who were being persecuted greatly for their faith in Jesus. See, the, some historical context, by this time, 
very, very many people in the Roman Empire were converting to Christianity in droves, actually, to the point where in some cities, the majority of the population had become Christians. And yet they were persecuted. Why? Well, here's why. Because it was so many people actually leaving paganism in some places and becoming Christians, becoming followers of Jesus, that the pagan temples, the temples of Jupiter and Saturn, which had at one time been full, were now becoming empty. And see, these things, they, they were a big revenue source, right? They brought in a lot of money. People would go make sacrifices. There were a lot of other acts that they would do there. And they would pay money to do these things. And so there's a whole economy built around this. And so as people are converting, you know, in large numbers from paganism to Christianity, the temples to the pagan gods are emptying out. It's messing up the economy, not to mention some people are traditionalists, right? They say, hey, when I was a kid, things were better, right? Not like the kids today, you know, with all their, you know, newfangled things. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have no Christianity. We all went to the pagan temple and that was better, right? You know how people are. And so you had these traditionalists on the one hand, you had the part of it that affected the economy on the other hand, and people weren't happy about the fact that so many people were converting to Christianity throughout the empire. Now, in 64 AD, something happened that kind of, you know, was kind of like the match that lit the fire, and that's really what it was. It was a fire. In 64 AD, there was a great fire in the city of Rome that destroyed almost half the city, and it killed a lot of people. And Caesar Nero took that opportunity to blame the fire on the Christians. Now, he didn't say that the Christians started the fire. They knew that the Christians didn't actually start the fire. What they said, what Nero said, is that the reason the fire happened is that the gods were angry because all these people were no longer going to the pagan temples and now becoming Christians. So the gods are angry that people People aren't visiting their temples, so they allowed this tragedy to happen in Rome, and Caesar Nero said, something has to be done about these Christians, and so he instigated the first official persecution of Christianity in the Roman Empire in 64 AD, and that set off 200 years straight of Christian persecution in the Roman Empire under people like Trajan and Hadrian, the names you might have heard of before. But they started this persecution, and what happened is that Christians were being rounded up. They were being arrested. Their houses were being plundered, sometimes burned and razed to the ground. Uh, Christians were being beaten. They were being tortured, some put in prison, and many were executed, oftentimes in the Colosseum. And for the next 200 years, this persecution raged on. Peter wrote this letter from Rome, the epicenter of the persecution right at the beginning of the persecution to Christians who were suffering for their faith or to who were about to suffer for, for their faith as this persecution spread out throughout the empire from Rome. And here's what he tells these people who are either suffering or about to suffer. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if some strange thing were happening to you. Peter is addressing their assumptions about suffering and about the will of God. And he talks again to these people who are surprised when suffering comes into their lives as if something strange was happening. See, one of the most common assumptions about suffering, so assumption number one is this. Suffering is meaningless and pointless and nothing good ever comes from it. Suffering is meaningless, it's pointless. There's no benefit to it. And Peter's going to tell us that's not necessarily true. It doesn't have to be true. Another common assumption about suffering, number two, is this. A good God would never allow people he loves to suffer. 
A good God would never allow people he loves to suffer. Therefore, if we suffer, either it means that God must not love us or it means that God must not be good or perhaps it's just that he's not powerful enough to control things or stop things from happening. And both of these assumptions, Peter's gonna tell us, are incorrect. They're incorrect. And God's word actually gives us a much better answer, a much better way to think about suffering, which actually leads us to so much hope, not only for the future, but also for our circumstances here and now today. You see, these two common assumptions that we talked about just a second ago, they also lead, the assumptions lead to two common reactions to suffering, two common reactions, and those are moralism and cynicism. Moralism basically says this, if you do all the right things, then God will be obligated to protect you. After all, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if you're a good person and you're doing all the right things, then God owes it to you to protect you and not let bad things happen to you. Therefore, if something bad happens to you, either it must mean that God is mad at you or he's punishing you or that God is being unfair and and he owes you an answer because he isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. See, moralism says this, if I do things for God, then God will be indebted to me. God will be obligated to repay the favor, right? I scratched his back, now he's got to scratch my back. He's got to do some things for me because I did some things for him. And that includes, you know, making my dreams come true and not letting me suffer. Many people come to Jesus with this incorrect assumption that if you give your life to Jesus, then God will make your life easy and pleasant and comfortable. And so when fiery trials come into their life, as they inevitably will, right, they're surprised. They're like, what is this? This isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for the opposite, right? I started following Jesus in order to avoid these things and this kind of stuff. But if you look through the Bible, what are you going to find? You're going to find story after story about people who loved God and yet they experienced fiery trials. Even Jesus himself suffered. Think about this. This is really the the death knell to uh, to this idea of moralism. It's this. Jesus himself suffered. The one person who the Bible tells us lived without sin, who never did anything wrong. He did everything that the Father told him to do, and still he suffered. Jesus suffered so much, in fact, that one of the titles given to him in the Bible, he's called the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He suffered disappointment. He was stabbed in the back. He was stabbed in the front, right? Like he was mistreated. He was misunderstood. He was attacked. He was betrayed. And he suffered physically. So if Jesus suffered so much during his life, then should we be surprised if we suffer in our lives? Not at all. Even if if we're doing exactly what God wants us to do, suffering will still be part of the story. Another common response to suffering is cynicism. Cynicism is like like my friend John was tempted to go to, right? Where you say, you know what? This is all just random. Suffering's random. Bad things just happen. Life stinks. Then you die. There's no need to over-spiritualize things and believe that there's a purpose behind everything. There really just is no explanation, no rhyme or reason. It's all just random. And the Bible would say, that's not true either. It's neither moralism nor cynicism. Rather, we live in a broken world where sin and death and suffering are realities that we live with and deal with, and yet there is also a good and loving and sovereign God. And so suffering isn't just completely random, nor does it work in a moralistic way of earning and deserving. 
So then, how should we understand suffering and how it relates to the will of God? Well, let's talk, that leads us to our next point, which is the redemption of suffering. See, the reality is that as you follow Jesus, there are gonna be some painful days. Peter's telling us, when those painful days come, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that something weird or strange is happening. J. Vernon McGee, he put it this way. He said, the Christian life is a banquet, but it's no picnic. The Christian life is a banquet, but it's no picnic. And I like that because one of the pictures that the Bible gives us of the Christian life in the church is that of a table and a feast and a party, right? Like the most, one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told was the story of the prodigal son who goes off and wrecks his life in sin and just wasteful living. And then he returns home to his father and his father embraces him and puts a ring on his finger and puts robes on his back, kills the fatted calf, seats him at the table, throws a party and has a feast, right? And guys, isn't that what you want our church to feel like? That's what I want our church to feel like, like the party for the prodigal son who came home, like a celebration for those of us who have come home to God and found life and liberty in Christ. So the Christian life is a banquet, but it's not a picnic. Walking with God doesn't guarantee that your life will be a walk in the park, right? Here's the thing. If you follow Jesus, you will have some difficult days, but you know what else? If you don't follow Jesus, you will have some difficult days. You're gonna have difficult days either way. Whether you live your life trusting Jesus or not trusting Jesus, you are going to face difficult things in your life and hardship. You're gonna get old either way, whether you love Jesus or not, right? There's this thing online right now where this challenge, right, to post a picture from 10 years ago, 2009, right? So I looked up a picture of myself from 10 years ago and guys, it's not, it wasn't encouraging. I gotta tell you, like there, there's basically two main differences. Uh, one is hair and the other is wrinkles, right? So I used to have a lot of hair, guys. Like it was, it was really, really nice. You would have liked it. Um, and I didn't have wrinkles, but now like I look every picture of myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get like some cream or something. And I can only imagine that like in 10 years, I don't even wanna know, like what am I gonna look like then? I'm just... You know, I can't afford to mess up my marriage is basically what it comes down to because the years are not good on me, guys. Like, I'm not aging well. Um, it's, it's been a rough 10 years, apparently. And that's just how it is, right? The same thing's gonna happen to you. Unless Jesus comes back, we're all gonna get old and get sick and we're all gonna die. Suffering's part of life and there are several reasons why that is the case, right? Number one, it's because we live in a world that is broken, the Bible says that the whole of creation lies under the curse of sin and death, right? We, we live under this dark cloud of sin and death that taints everything, not just us as humanity, but all of creation. Things in the world don't work the way that they ought to. We all feel that. We look at the world and say, it might be how it is, but it's not how it should be. It should be different. And not only that, but we are not even the people who we know we ought to be. In addition, though, to the evil in the world and the evil that's even inside of us, right, and the evil in other people, there's also another factor in suffering, and that's that sometimes we just make bad decisions that cause problems. So, so beyond that, though, here's what Peter would tell us. There's another factor in this, and that is the will of God. When trials come into our lives, our natural tendency is to think, no one has ever suffered the way that I'm suffering. And therefore, no one can understand. And the second thing is, there is no way through this. So number one, no one has ever suffered like I'm suffering. And number two, there's no way through that. And guess what? Neither of those things are true. As much as we tend to feel like we're, what we're going through is 
unparalleled and unprecedented and completely unique, and therefore no one could possibly understand. God's word tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that there is no suffering, no test, no trial that we face in this life except that which is common to mankind. And what that means is that there's nothing you're facing right now or that you're going to face in the future that God hasn't already taken somebody else through. Do you know that? Right? There's, there's nothing that you are going to face in life that God hasn't already given someone else the strength and endurance to get through. And if he's done it for them, if he's brought them through that same thing, then he can bring you through it as well. There's nothing you will face in this life that Jesus is not fully equipped to carry you through completely. So don't quit. Don't give up, even when you're in the valley, right? So one of my hobbies, I like to climb mountains. And this is a great feeling, right, when you get to the top of one of these high mountains. And what you get at the top of the mountain is you get perspective, right? So at the top of the mountain, you get this great experience. You get this perspective where you can see everything clearly. You can see where you came from. You can see where you need to go after that. You can see everything because you're at the top of the mountain, but when you're in the valley, you don't have that benefit, right? Oftentimes in the valley, it's dark because the mountains block out the sun. Oftentimes in the valley, it's cold, right? Because again, there's no sun. Uh, the valley, in the valley, it's hard to get your bearings and know where you need to go because you can't see outside of that valley, right? So what, you, what do you got to do? In the valley, you have to trust the map, don't you? You have to trust the map. We need that map, and God's given us that map in his word. We need it all the more when we're in the valley. When you're in the valley, it's important to keep moving, keep going on the trail and trusting the map. So not only should you not quit and not give up in the valley, but here's the other thing you need to know, that God does some of his greatest work in you and through you in the valley. And that's what Peter talks about here, starting in verse 13, the redemption of our suffering. In other words, in this life, you're going to experience suffering. But if you give your life to Jesus, if you put that suffering in his hands, if you bind yourself to him, then your suffering will not be in vain. God will take that suffering and he will redeem it. He will bring good out of it, both for you and for other people through you. Check out what Peter says in this, about this, starting in verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, it may be dark now, but it's not always going to be this way. Dawn is coming. There is a new day on the horizon in which suffering and death and sickness and pain and tears will be no more. The good news of the gospel is that because of what Jesus accomplished in his life death and resurrection. One day, everything in this world that is wrong is going to end forever and things that will be made right. There will be a new heavens, a new earth in which there won't be any wheelchairs. There won't be any medications. But that's not all that Peter's saying here. Think about this. Peter is, Peter is tying our suffering to Jesus' suffering. He's tying our suffering to Jesus' suffering. That's why he says you can rejoice when you share in Jesus' sufferings. He specifies this in verses 15 and 16. Peter says in verse 15, he says, look, a lot of people suffer. Murderers suffer. Thieves suffer. Evildoers suffer. But verse 16, he says, but if you suffer as a Christian, then you should glory in God. In other words, you can hold your head up high and consider yourself blessed and privileged if you suffer as a Christian. In other words, there's something unique about the way that Christians suffer versus the way that other suffering takes place, right? There's something different about our suffering. 
Before we go on, just a quick side note in verse 15 that's interesting, but it's not really the main point, but I do want to kind of point it out. In verse 15, Peter gives this list of kind of really bad sins, murder, stealing, doing evil, and then he tags another one on the end of that. Did you notice that? And meddling in other people's business. So, you know, some translations say busybodies. A busybody or a meddler is someone who occupies themselves with someone else's business rather than minding their own business. There's a great proverb about this, by the way. In Proverbs 26, verse 17, it says, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who grabs a passing dog by the ears. So isn't it interesting, though, that Peter gives this list of really bad sins? Murder, stealing, evil, meddling, getting involved in other people's business, being a busybody, you know, talking about other people's stuff. Why does he list that here? Well, I think on the one hand, it's because I think many of us do this and we don't think it's a really big deal. Peter wants to say, actually, it is a big deal. On the other hand, though, I think that Peter is trying to help us see something about ourselves. So many of us, our, our MO, our immediate thing is like we excuse ourselves And we'll say things like, well, I'm not really that bad, right? Like, I'm not like other people out there. Like, I'm not, I've never murdered anybody, or I'm not a thief, or I'm not like Hitler. And and Peter says, okay, so you're not like Hitler, and you're not a thief, and you're not a murderer, but are you a meddler? Of course you are, right? Of course, right? And so we we never, we don't want to consider ourselves really bad people. And then he says, and meddlers, right, and busybodies. In other words, he's got us right there. He's trying to tell us, look, you're in the same boat as these people. Peter's saying this, we all sin, we all fall short, and sometimes we suffer because of dumb things we do. We don't just always suffer for the name of Jesus. But he says in verse 16, there is something unique about the way that Christians suffer. There's something different about our suffering. He tells us what it is in verses 13 and 14. If you go back a second, it says this, as Christians, our suffering is tied to Jesus' suffering. So we can actually rejoice in and glory in our sufferings. Let me tell you why. Because when Jesus suffered, were his sufferings meaningless? Were the sufferings of Jesus a complete waste? Were they vain? Were they, or did they have actually, did they have a purpose? Did they accomplish something? Well, of course, they had a purpose. They accomplished something. They weren't just in vain. He suffered, but his suffering wasn't meaningless. And what that means is that if you are tied to him as a Christian, your suffering, if it is tied to and connected to Jesus' suffering, like he said in verse 13, then that means that God can and will use our suffering to accomplish something significant and good. In chapter one of this letter, Peter referred to the gospel in this way. He said, the gospel is the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. And what Peter's saying here and throughout his letter is that if you are in Christ, that same dynamic is true in your life as well. Your suffering isn't just meaningless and pointless. If you're in Christ, your suffering is not in vain. Rather, just as Jesus suffered and his suffering resulted in glory and it accomplished something good, in the same way God will redeem your suffering in Christ and use it for good and to bring about glorious things. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 14. As a Christian, when you suffer, consider yourself blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, if you are connected to Jesus by faith in the gospel, by clinging to him, then your suffering is not wasted. It's not in vain. But just as God used Jesus' suffering to accomplish something good and glorious, he will use your suffering to accomplish good and glorious things as well. 
In verse 13, Peter talked about how when Christ is revealed, when Christ is revealed, and we we remember that Christ will be revealed fully when he comes again, when he will be seen by every eye and every knee will bow. But here's another thing. Right now, did you know that Christ can be revealed in the world through you? God wants to reveal himself to the world through you. And how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, one of the ways that the gospel speaks the loudest in your life, one of the ways that your hope shines the brightest for people to see and the reality of Christ is seen most clearly in you is sometimes when you go through hard times, when you suffer, when things don't go the way you hoped they would and you walk with God through those things and continue trusting him in them. I think about Acts chapter 16. It was a time where Paul the Apostle was on his second missionary journey and they came to the town of Philippi and Paul and Silas, his missionary companion, they got arrested and they got thrown in prison for preaching about Jesus. And so they're there in the jail and it says that about at midnight, right? In the darkness, in that jail cell, damp and cold and dark, it says they were praying out loud and singing praises to worship God. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you could imagine how easy it would be for many of us to be in that similar situation and be cursing God or questioning God. God, why did you let this happen to us? Here we were serving you, telling people about you, and you let us be beaten and arrested. You abandoned us. You didn't help us out. I can't believe that this happened. Maybe there is no God after all, because if God really loved us, he certainly wouldn't have let this happen to us when we were doing what he wanted us to do. But instead of cursing God or questioning God, instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they praised God in the dungeon at midnight. And then, of course, to everyone's surprise, there was this earthquake that happened right after that. And the doors on the cell were broken and they were able to walk out. But they didn't just walk out because there was a jailer there who was about to commit suicide because he's going to be held liable for these people breaking out of jail. And they tell him, hey, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. And the guy says, okay. And then he asked them a question. He had heard them praying all night in the dungeon. He had heard them singing these songs of praise to God. And you know what he asked them? He said, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that night, that man and his entire family, they put their faith in Jesus and they became Christians and they were baptized. And it was precisely because Paul and Silas were in this terrible situation and because in that situation they were expressing their continued faith in God and their hope for the gospel, right? It was so evident, it was so clear against the backdrop of the darkness and the the dirtiness of that prison. It was so evident that this was something different that this prison guard looked at them and said, whatever those guys have is what I need, So when people see you going through trials, when people see you suffering and you still have hope and joy in the midst of it because of what Jesus did for you and the hope that you have, that is when the light of the gospel shines most clearly and brightly through you. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, Paul the apostle says that one of the most incredible, amazing, unimaginable things you can really not even wrap your mind around is that God has placed the light of his glory inside of us who believe. And Paul describes it like this. He says, it's as if you would take the most precious treasure in the world and put it in a simple clay pot. Now to bring that in our terms, it'd be like if you took the Hope Diamond, right? The, most, uh, the largest, most expensive diamond in the world and you just carried it around in like a paper sack, right? Like a crumpled up lunch sack. That's what it's, that'd be like our modern parallel. 
And that's what it's like, that God has put the light of his glory inside of us. We're like those paper sacks, right? Brown, right? Nothing special, nothing too shiny. He's put earthen vessels, right? We've got, some of us have got some chips in us. We're kind of earthy. And, and he says, God has put the light of his glory inside of us. We contain that within us. But this picture of the light being in earthen vessels, jars of clay, you know, paper bags, it, it kind of harkens back to an Old Testament story, which also contained clay pots with light inside of them. In the story of Gideon, you might remember that Gideon was given the task of defending the people of God against a tribe of people called the Midianites. And the people of Israel were severely outnumbered. But God took, told Gideon, I want you to take just 300 men, 300 against tens of thousands of Midianites, 300 men, and in the middle of the night, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna surround the camp where they're encamped. And every man's going to take in his hands a clay jar, a jar of clay, right? So a, a pot, a clay pot. And inside that pot, there's going to be a torch. But don't light the torch until you get in position. So they get in position. And they're quiet. They're sneaking up. They're in a circle around the Midianite camp. And then they take the lid off of the pots. They light the torch, put the lid back on the pots. And then on Gideon's count, they take their swords and they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and they use their sword and they break the clay pot, which reveals the light inside from the torch, and it shines forth. And the Midianites wake up and they look around. There's all these torches around them, and they assume that each of these torches isn't just a single person, but it's a whole, you know, troop of people, right? Thousands and thousands, and there's so much confusion and who's who and what's what in the darkness that the people of Israel end up getting the victory because that light shone in the darkness. And understand, Paul the Apostle is alluding to that story when he says that God has put the light of his glory into us and we are like those clay pots. So I want you to follow that analogy a little further. If God has placed within you the light of his glory as in a clay pot, you know what that means? When does that light shine most brilliantly? When is it most clearly seen? You know when? When the pot is broken. When the pot, when we are broken. See, when you're broken in suffering, in the dark night, when the cracks, right, the brokenness, the chips, and when those come in your life, that's when the light of the glory of God can shine through you most clearly, most brilliantly. And that's why you have to ask yourself the big question. The big question is this. What is the goal and purpose of your life? What is the goal and purpose of your life? Seriously, you need to ask yourself that question. Here's why. Because if your goal and your purpose in life is merely to have a comfortable life, then you will always view suffering as an unwelcome intrusion. You will never be able to rejoice in suffering because you will always view it as an intrusion, something which has come and is taking away the goal and purpose of your life, which is to be comfortable. If, on the other hand, your life has a bigger purpose, a higher goal, a greater mission than just your own comfort, then can suffering have a, a value? Absolutely it can. If the purpose and meaning and goal of your life is fellowship with God and being used by God to accomplish his mission in the world, then in that case, can suffering have value? Of course it can. 
You know, I remember taking my babies to get vaccinated, all of them, because my wife really hates doing it. She'd be like, hey, you have to take them because I can't handle it. It's just a heart-wrenching experience. You take this little baby in there who trusts you, right? And the baby's looking at you and they're all happy and smiling. And you take him into this room and then all of a sudden in walks this stranger and takes this needle and stabs them right in the flesh, right in their healthy little flesh, stabs them right there. And not only does the needle hurt, but it contains things which have the ability to destroy your child, to kill them, to to destroy their health and actually kill them. And the thing, though, is that that moment of pain can save them from greater suffering later on. In the right amount, those same things which can kill them can actually make them stronger and save them from greater suffering later. As your baby looks at you, though, right, they look at you with this shock in their eyes like, I thought I could trust you, right? Like, you betrayed me. Like, I thought you loved me. How could you allow that person to do that to me? And you know, though, that there's no way that that child can yet possibly understand that the reason you let them experience that pain is precisely because you love them. See, in the same way, there are things which God, in his love, allows in our lives, suffering in our lives, to accomplish good things. Give you a quick list of things from the Bible. You can jot it down or it'll be in the app for later. Here, number one, God uses suffering to draw people to himself. He uses suffering to draw people to himself. You know, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience and he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Just like the prodigal son, you know, didn't return to God until he hit rock bottom. So many of us, that's, when we, that's what it takes to get us to turn to God. That's not punishment, that's love. Secondly, God uses suffering to produce humility within us which is for our good because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Thirdly, God, use, God allows suffering to build our character and holiness and hope. That's what he talks about in verses 17 and 18 here in 1 Peter chapter 4. God allows suffering, number four, to help you develop compassion, kindness, and empathy for others. Number five, God uses sympathy to advance the gospel. And number six, suffering can be used to bring glory to God. So with these things in mind, it leads us to our third and final point, which is this, a new way to think about suffering. Rather than hating it, rather than simply enduring it, rather than questioning God because of it, Peter tells us that because of what we know about God and how he can and does and will use even our suffering for his mission, um, and what that means is that we can have a totally new outlook on it. We can welcome it with joyful expectation, excited to see what God will bring out of it. We can embrace hardship and suffering in our lives with a missional mindset, knowing that it's going to give us opportunities to bring glory to God and for Christ to be revealed in the world through our lives for other people's eyes to see. And Peter told us in verse 13, he said, because of what Jesus has done, we can actually be glad even in the face of suffering. We can glory in our sufferings, as Paul says in Romans chapter five, confident that God will bring good things out of them. In verse 19, Peter concludes by saying this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Because Jesus came, the son of God and yet very God of very God, he suffered so that through him, And what he accomplished, suffering would one day end forever. And in him, your suffering can now have purpose and value. It can be redeemed for your good and for the good of others. 
These promises are for you if you trust in and cling to and rely on Jesus and what he did for you. So I want to encourage you to do that today. Look to Jesus and entrust your soul to him as your faithful creator and your faithful savior. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are truly a faithful creator. You're a faithful savior. Lord, you're the one who has not only saved us, but you sustain us. You give us the strength to walk through even difficult things. Lord, I pray for those of us today who are suffering, going through hardship, Lord, that you would strengthen us in the valley, that you would help us to keep walking and trusting the map. Lord, would you help us that through our sufferings, Lord, may they not be in vain. May we see that they're not wasted, Lord, but that you're redeeming them and you're gonna bring glory to yourself and you're gonna bring greater joy to us as a result of them. Lord, in the midst of our difficulties, may we have that missional mindset that says, through this trial, how can God be revealed more greatly? Lord, help us to have this attitude and glorify you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.